My dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, up for our consideration this morning is once again this very familiar story of the Good Samaritan, a story that is so familiar to most of us that it even uh, has become part of our secular vocabulary, right? Whenever anybody is observed doing something particularly virtuous or selfless for the sake of someone else, we call them what? A Good Samaritan, right? The danger, I guess, with familiar stories is that while they immediately bring to mind certain images, thoughts, themes, etc., they're also sometimes apt to seem just a little bit stale. Hmm? And finally, then, harmless. They can lose their oomph, you know? They can lose their power to change us because we've heard them so often. And I wonder if sometimes we're given to read this story wrong, as though Jesus is the good Samaritan stopping to help the poor wounded souls by the side of life's road. And then Jesus becomes the example for us. I think while that's a popular interpretation that it might be wrong, I think more likely it's probably Jesus laying there by the side of the road, beaten, discarded, and left for dead by a world that has very little use for him. Right? Even the most religious folks, they pass right by him, right? disguised as he is in the needs of the suffering world. I suppose that's because so often we think we've got better things to do than tend to Jesus who is hidden in the least of these. The surprising element of the story, of course, is that it's a Samaritan, one who is regarded as outcast, one who is regarded as a worthless person in the eyes of the righteous, who becomes the hero of the story, who actually stops to receive Jesus. Notice how I didn't say he just stops to help Jesus. <laughs> In stopping to give of himself, he is the one who finally fully receives Jesus and thereby fully receives his humanity. The Samaritan doesn't just give, he gets. He gets to be a real human being the way God designed human beings to be from the start, caring about one another. So, the question is, why did no one else stop to receive Jesus as he lay on the side of the road? I think that's maybe a question worth considering for just a moment this morning. The obvious answer, I suppose, is that folks just don't expect the Messiah, the Savior of the world, to be beaten and left for dead by the very people that he comes to save and love. But I think that the not-so-obvious answer lies deeper in the human experience. How could we possibly not recognize the God who made us when he comes to us, even if it should be in need and in suffering? How could we miss the one from whom we sprung. I think the answer has something to do with air conditioning. Yeah, I said it. Now, let me explain, okay? James Farrell was a history professor at St. Olaf College in Northfield, Minnesota for about 35 years. 
where he was a professor of history. and He was a frequent commentator on the American experience. Now, be, me being a product of Luther College in Decor, Iowa, which is just down the road a ways from St. Olaf, I've always been suspicious of things Ole. <laughs> you know, they were one of our main competitors back then. But I'll tell you what, I always appreciated whenever Dr. Farrell's words popped up in one of my professional journals. And back in um, about 2012, which is just shortly before his death, in 2013, I recall him writing about air conditioning and how perhaps it's become a symptom in us of something deeper and something more insidious. So the following are a few of his thoughts that I wanted to share with you. He wrote, you know, we live on the only planet in our solar system with an atmosphere that supports life. We breathe air that is beautifully conditioned combination of nitrogen, oxygen, carbon dioxide, and other gases. But it isn't conditioned enough for most of us. As the saying goes, if you can't stand the heat, air-condition the kitchen. In 1902, Willis Carrier invented the air conditioner. Basically a refrigerator for human beings. And like a refrigerator, it takes humidity and heat out of the air and deposits them elsewhere. Air conditioning conditions the air, but Professor Farrell suggests that it also conditions our cultural expectations. It reveals our preference for the great indoors, our preference for what we proudly call climate control. It suggests that unlike other critters, we expect the environment to adapt to us rather than the other way around, us adapting to our environment. And he says such comfort does not come cheap. A study that was done in Minnesota about a decade ago um, reported that it cost at that time roughly 25 cents a day to run a fan in a room. It cost about $2.50 to run a window air conditioner unit and about six bucks a day to run a central air conditioning unit in a home. Now we know that prices have gone up in the last decade, but the ratio still pretty much stands. Air conditioning is a very simple technology that replaces the complex cultural conditioning that was taught to primitive people, like our parents <laughs> and our grandparents, right? How about how to deal with the heat before air conditioning? We didn't build cities in places like the desert, right? Folks planted trees and shrubs to shade their homes. They used awnings to cover their windows on the east and west side of their homes. And instead of cooling all the spaces in a building, maybe they used a fan to cool off a room that they were in at any given time. And when indoor spaces became too hot, they went out and sat on the porch, maybe to get some relief, especially in the cool of the evening. As an aside, I've shared with this, uh, this with you before, but when my grandmothers were young, um, they didn't cook inside the house in the summertime. They had a summer kitchen, which was basically just a shack outside the back door of the farmhouse where they had an extra stove. So they did all their cooking out there so as not to heat up the house in the middle of the day. In some cultures that are less obsessed with work than ours, a midday siesta was a common practice. So you didn't do busyness and business in the heat of the day. And sometimes, back then, Folks were just plain uncomfortable. A solid majority of American homes today, and in fact, 
over 90% of all new construction are built with central air conditioning, which annually consume the electrical equivalent of the output of seven or eight large coal power plants. 15% of all our country's electricity goes for space cooling. The fuel we burn to cool our homes and offices releases 100 million tons of carbon dioxide into the air each year. So when we turn our thermostats down, we turn the air outside up, right? But that does not stop us from considering our comfort to be a constant, even in a natural cycle of the seasons. Those were Dr. Farrell's words. Now, his words came back to me this last week as the AC went kaput in my son Leet's Jeep, okay? And as a result, he wanted to borrow one of our newer vehicles to go up into the hills and take pictures, which presented me the perfect opportunity to give one of my back-in-the-day speeches <laughs> about how I never had a car with air conditioning until I was in my 30s, and I'm sure the windows still roll down in your Jeep and kids these days and all of that, right? Um, now, lest you think that all this means I'm going to go retro and never turn on the air conditioner again, think again. When we raised money for the AC repair in this room, my check was probably one of the first written, all right? Yet all of us could be a little more responsible when it comes to thinking about the costs. But it's not the air conditioning of our bodies that concerns me today. It's the air conditioning of our brains, of our souls. Just like the AC removes any heat or humidity that might cause us to be uncomfortable, I think we've become pretty good at air conditioning our brains to remove from our thought processes anything that might cause us discomfort or inconvenience or trauma or pain or simply upset the way we go about our day-to-day -day living. See, when Jesus came in flesh and blood to those people in Palestine a couple thousand years ago, he came with a very strange proposition. He suggested that the kind of faith and the kind of life most interesting to God had a lot less to do with correct doctrine or right worship practices or patriotic slogans or correct-sounding, pious-sounding legislation, relationship with God, he suggested, started with seeing God first in the face of the neighbor who is in front of you at any given time. And even though the people of two millennia ago had absolutely no notion of air conditioning their homes, I think they'd already successfully air conditioned their brains. And how did they do that? Well, they had already neatly divided the world into clean people and unclean people, right? Into the deserving and the undeserving, the moral and the immoral, the blessed, which were the prosperous, and the cursed, which were the downtrodden, the poor, the sick, the suffering, the other. The Samaritan in our story simply stepped out of his comfort zone for a moment and he entered the unconditioned air of inconvenient compassion 
And in that action, he came face to face with God hidden in the suffering of a neighbor. And in doing so, he, this one who was regarded as other, as unclean, as outcast by those around him, he was fully, divinely, unconditionally human. Maybe we too could let ourselves feel the heat just a little bit. Step out of the air-conditioned cocoons we too often inhabit and find that life is better lived out there in the God-made atmosphere of care and compassion for our neighbor. As my mother used to say to us as we sat in the living room in the middle of the summer in front of the air-conditioned TV, you know, it wouldn't kill you to go outside. Amen. Amen.